Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to identify two ways to address patient concerns and hesitancy with COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Today, he will be interviewing Dr. David Malbranch, a board-certified internal medicine physician and sexual health HIV specialist. Dr. Allwater, Dr. Malbranch, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Faith, and delighted to have David here today. It's a pleasure to be here, Paul. Thank you for having me. You know, so much has been written about, said about vaccine hesitancy and some of those themes that I think are especially pertinent to large numbers in HIV care. I wanted to get your sense for some of the ways that you have found helpful to perhaps persuade people or offer reassurance. It's often been said the doctor has some of the best positions to try to help convince people to do something that really is in their best interest, even if they're hesitant or uh, concerned. Um, and wanted to get your own perspective or even what some of your colleagues have found most helpful. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky and slippery slope, um, as you know, so I, I think it's a great question. One of the things that I've always tried to practice myself, particularly with this issue of who wants to get the COVID vaccine and when and if they're ready, um, is the art of listening. And I think as physicians, healthcare professionals, and public health officials, we don't tend to listen too much, um, or we don't enjoy listening to what our patients have to say, especially if it's uh, contradictory to what we believe or the, the goal or objective we're trying to get them to do, even if it's kind of this paternalistic, well, I know what's better for you at this point, I think what's worked for me and a lot of colleagues is just um, sitting down and listening to the reason. So for, you know, for a lot of my patients that come in when they come in and I say, you know, one of the parts of my history, you know, what are you doing with the COVID vaccine? Some of them have been exposed to COVID naturally and may have immunity and then have been told that their immunity is the end all be all of protection and they're good. So they'll say that. Others have had experiences with their family members, friends, um, others don't want any part of it. And so I just tend to listen. And it's interesting because I, I pay attention to body language and facial expressions. And I can see when they tell me the reason why they're, they're not really wanting to get the vaccine or they don't believe it in it right now. And it could be because of just general distrust of medicine. It could be it came about too quickly. It could be I'm a wait on it or whatever reason they have. When they see that I'm listening, and then I'll, I'll usually say something like, you know what, that's a good point. Um, I don't disagree with that. And then what I try to do afterwards is invite them into some other conversations, because you realize that you're fighting disinformation from the internet, you're fighting historical and present um, 
racial inequities and other kinds of inequities that you're seeing in medical facilities. And so I just ask at that point, like, hey, do you mind if I tell you, can I explain a little something more? Or after they finish telling me what's going on, they'll look at me and I'm just listening and they'll say, well, doc, what do you think? And so I can tell like, oh, they're glad that I'm listening and not just saying, well, that's wrong. You need this. The vaccine is the most important thing. How could you be so selfish? How are you not protecting so-and-so and so-and-so? And so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an aspect that kind of creates the environment and opens the door for you to invite them in to some additional perspectives. Now, will you get them vaccinated on that day? That's another question. It could take several visits. I've, I've had patients where I've, I've successfully uh, convinced them to get the vaccine and they've gotten it that day. I've had others where it took three or four visits over months. Um, and then sometimes they didn't even tell me, they just came in. I had one patient who came in and just started smiling. And it was in that, that small window period where we thought if people were vaccinated, if we were seeing a patient in person, we could both take off our masks. And then that slowly eroded out. We put the mask back on, but it was during that period, he took his mask off and he smiled from ear to ear. And I was like, why are you smiling? He was like, doc, I got vaccinated. And I was thinking, well, maybe his mother told him or his pastor told him, or maybe this. And I was like, well, what changed your mind? He was like, you did doc, you changed my mind. And I was thinking, I had already given up on him. I brought it up so many times and he had turned me down so many times that I was like, well, you know what, just keep wearing your mask, keep protecting yourself. And if you change your mind, you have any questions, let me know. He had already made the decision and to hear him verbally say that I was the reason that he changed and that he didn't have any after effects from the vaccine and he felt fine. And he actually went on to say, well, I was wondering why I didn't get it in the first place. That really warmed my heart and reminded me not to give up. Now, all my patient stories are not those stories but I think when that one happens, it's that kind of old cliche, if you can reach one person in the room, you've done your job. And I think we need a, a hell of a lot more than one person in the room yeah. to combat this pandemic. But still, I think the, the message that I got was that, you know, David, don't give up on people. Just keep, you know, giving people information and updating information, listening to them, and then being honest about where you stand. And for some, it, it will eventually get through. Yeah, I, I so heartily and endorse your point of view. I, you know, people often have relatively set ideas or concerns and trying to make a change in one day is, is impossible. But what about the COVID-19 uh, patient that's infected? They may have mild symptoms. They have HIV, perhaps it's not very well treated. So perhaps they're going to run into more trouble, uh, severe COVID-19. You don't have the luxury of months. I sort of say this because I've been working with uh, one of our largest state infusion clinics for monoclonal antibodies. <laughs> and what we've found, at least preliminarily, we're assembling a manuscript, the same groups that are very that are more vaccine hesitant than others. So it's going to be people that live in the city, often uh, people of color, um, uh, people with um, uh, in zip codes with uh, less income levels than others are the ones that seem to be just as hesitant about so-called monoclonal antibodies, which are hard, a little hard to explain. Uh, and then uh, the same as vaccines. And I was wondering if you had any experiences there, because this is where we don't have the luxury of several visits and so on, if we're really going to make an intervention. And 
you know, I, I think there it's it's quite a different dynamic potentially. Yeah, and it's it's tricky because a, a lot of the communication hasn't been uh, simplified to a level where people will understand. You know, the IDSA has their recommendations for you know what medications have support of you know clinical trials where certain medications will work like remdesivir, um, steroids, those kind of things. And then monoclonal antibodies are recommended for mild to moderate illness um, where you think you can do something. And now we're seeing, you know, some of the oral medications that may be helpful that we're pushing for FDA approval for. But I think that communication hasn't happened to be translated to the general public to understand that. And I remember I had a, a patient that I saw on a telemedicine visit that had been to the same ER twice, diagnosed with COVID, the first time sent home uh, for general kind of conservative therapy. Uh, he got worse after three days, went back to the same ER and they found some fluid on his lungs, told him he had a one-sided COVID pneumonia, gave him a ceftriaxone and a week of doxy um, for presumed like some community acquired pneumonia coverage. And what he ended up doing was coming back. And they told him to do jumping jacks as well when he was home. And then he saw me. And while I'm seeing him on the telemedicine, he looked kind of not well and he was coughing periodically. So I said, and they actually mentioned to him after he went to the ER for the second time that he should he may be a candidate for monoclonal antibodies. So it was kind of typical ER, follow up with your PCP, get another chest X-ray and get monoclonal antibodies as if every clinic has an infusion center to give monoclonal antibodies. And he's sitting there looking at me like, doc, what am I gonna do? And I'm sitting there saying, I can't give you monoclonal antibodies and we don't have an X-ray machine on, on site here. So it's gonna be problematic. So I sent him to a different ER they evaluated him. I gave him my cell phone number. He texted me back that night and said, oh, they're admitting me. And I said, okay, interesting. I said, well, why did they admit you? Because he had reported that his oxygen level was always right at 95 or slightly above. Mm -hmm. I said, well, that's interesting. Why, why did they admit you? He said, well, they did a chest X-ray and now I have double COVID pneumonia. Um, and so I'm getting remdesivir and steroids. And so I asked him, I'd asked him before about the monoclonal antibodies. And now he was like, well, I'm way beyond that fact. And he was somebody undetectable on his antiretroviral therapy, had a T-cell count that was in the 900 range, mm. um, but also was obese by BMI and had a history of hypertension, but only 31 years old. So relatively young and unvaccinated. And to this day, even after he went to the hospital, did well for the three days, got better, um, texted me and said he didn't realize how sick he was feeling until he got the medication and felt better. And then when he followed up with one of our nurse practitioners, she informed me, she said, you know, he still doesn't want to get the vaccine. And I said, I, you know, I, you, you can't really combat that. And what I've learned, one of the points I would make is that um, the power of one anecdotal uh, story uh, with a lot of people to make the determination. And for me, I'm trying to explain to people, well, I had a friend who was 40 years old who got COVID and died. That was all I needed to hear to kind of get me to the point where if we have a vaccine and it's been through the rigors of science and clinical trials and it's found to be effective, I'm going to take the vaccine because I don't want any part of that. But there were so many people, patients that I saw who didn't have anecdotal stories of someone close to them getting sick, hospitalized or dying from COVID-19. They seem to have more stories about people describing adverse reactions to the vaccine. And so when you're looking at this kind of risk benefit and all they're hearing in their head is stories of people close to them that didn't get sick from the virus itself, but did have problems with the vaccine. 
that tips the scales into, you know what? I'm gonna take my chances with getting the virus um, instead of taking a chance with getting some side effects or some after effects from the vaccine. And while I don't agree with that, it's understandable why someone would kind of uh, delve into that approach with this. You know, I, I think you, you make the strong case for taking a narrative perspective in almost so many cases, because I think the people that might be convinced by data and so on and so forth, they're the easy ones. They're, we're communicating on that level. That's how most of us tend to make decisions in medicine. Right. But otherwise, it's really the stories. And sometimes, I'll be honest, uh, I'm bending some of the stories I've heard, but ones that I hope will be convincing. I Maybe that's a little paternalistic, <laughs> I have to say. But but it's really the stories because you have to. It, it makes it more personal, and right. I think we as humans like hearing stories. We'd rather hear stories than data, and I think that's a misstep we've taken with the pandemic, where you know um, we've we've not used stories enough. And of course, all you hear about, to your point, are the vaccine reactions. You don't hear about. Oh yeah, I was. No problem. You know, no one's telling those stories. <laughs> you know, you know, people don't complain when, you know, oh, my flight landed 10 minutes early. I, you know, you know, it, you're complaining when you're stuck on the tarmac for two hours or you were screwed by Delta right. Airlines. And, right. You know, I was going to say Delta. that's kind of the American way. It's like we, we tend to focus on particularly in the media, whether it be uh, traditional media or social media, we tend to highlight the bad stories or the bad things that happen. And so I think um, the biggest take home lesson from the medical and public health professions is that we learn, we have to learn to be better at communication, at marketing. And that's what it's all about right now is that how can we make science marketable or communicate it in a much more effective way to people so they, they will understand. And I think it is one of those things, when I do presentations myself, and this has nothing to do with COVID, I tend not to give the audience slide after slide of clinical data, bar graphs, um, all these kind of charts and stuff, because people's eyes, you can see it in the audience, they start to glaze over when they see slide after slide of hard data. And these are scientists. And so you think about the general population, they'll probably have a similar response to that if you just give them you know, statistic after statistic, story after story, and you're giving them something where it's not really uh, something that touches their heart or something that they can connect with, you just keep, keep giving them numbers thinking that that's going to convince them. And I think one of the, the things that we've learned from this uh, COVID-19 pandemic is that it's not always the numbers that um, persuade people in one direction or the other. It's the power, like you said, of that personal anecdote or that personal story of someone that was in their close familial or social circle that's really gonna be the determinant about whether they go ahead with the vaccine or monoclonal antibodies or whatever intervention we may have um, in place, so. I, the, you know, the, this, is, this is the power of human interest stories. It's just so hard to get people to talk about their health and you've seen a little bit of it uh, in an effort to try to tell people, but. I even think of it like climate change. You know, people are showing, oh gosh, what's happening with a drought? How is this affecting somebody? Here's a flood. How does that affect these families? And you hear these right. stories. To me, that creates the power and the incentive to say, yes, we really have to address something. 
here where one in 500 Americans have died of COVID, it hasn't really touched every family. So, you know, depending where you live and your own habits and, you know, what influence, it's the stories that I think are going to count and convince David. So um, I, I think these are things when, like this uh, presentation, I think is very important because we're we're not really talking so much about data, but just how we change behaviors and 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 our own as much as you know helping our patients hopefully uh, with what we think are smart decisions. Some are urgent, like monoclonal antibodies. Uh, others we have a little bit of time to convince without losing trust in people. And I and I think coming on too strong, uh, in my experience, uh, people start losing. Uh, that trust. And that's what happens in media. You try to convey so much so fast. Yeah, and I think um, the whole the whole uh, wording of the language around translational research is actually really appropriate because we talk about bringing it from the bench to communities or interventions. And if we talk about translational research, that's what we are as public health officials and healthcare professionals. We're translators. And so how can we look at ourselves dissecting this complex medical and clinical trial information um, while kind of fending off disinformation campaigns and YouTube videos from people that have never studied science a day in their life, um, but think that they know more than you know someone that's doing it for 40 years of their life. It's really a delicate balance to do that and to do that in, and also the sensibilities of people being offended um, easily not wanting to disagree or argue about certain things and just wanting to kind of hold um, hold the toe and say, okay, this is the way I believe, this is what I'm gonna stick to and being able to listen to. But I, I do think going back to one of the things we talked about earlier, the power of listening and acknowledging that someone is heard, I think is, is very helpful in this translational approach. We are the ones who have the medical training, the public health training. We know how to interpret the clinical trials, the scientific data. Um, our job, that's where the art comes in, is being able to relay this to a very diverse set of populations and patients that come in to see us in a way that resonates with them. It's kind of cultural competency, cultural humility, all those things rolled up into one. And if we don't get better at it, if we don't learn from this, it's going to impact a lot of other things. I don't think medicine, we were doing a great job with it before, and we really fumbled the ball with COVID-19. Um, but the silver lining is that there's a lot of lessons that we can learn as we move forward. I think that's so true. I, I think, again, the business of medicine is pushed more and more away from that time and the abilities to try to do this and completely unmasked by the pandemic here. So I uh, really want to thank uh, you, David, uh, for again, for your insights, expertise. Hopefully, uh, I've learned quite a bit from our discussion and hopefully can try to incorporate some of those things into my practice. So really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Malbranch, Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.